Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Economics in 10 with Pete and Gav. In each podcast, we'll be looking at a famous economist and asking 10 questions that will hopefully inform you and get you thinking about their influence in modern society today. We've been looking at living economists this season. So who is it today, Pete, and why are they so influential today? So today, Gav, we'll be looking at the work and life of Muhammad Yunus, uh, the founder of Bangladesh's Grameen Bank, the visionary champion of microfinance, an economist and a social entrepreneur. Yeah, can I just say my welcome there was Bangladeshi. Right, you know, okay. It, like, you know, I looked up how to say kind of hello and welcome. And, yeah. I don't know, I probably said it really badly. Okay, well, you normally do. Well, I know, but I just wanted to apologise because there's probably some people out there going, oh my goodness gracious me, you know, like, what's going on there? So, anyway. Well, I'm sure they'll get over it. (laughs) So, Mohammed Yunus has won numerous accolades. First, and I think pretty much sure, he's the only economist to win, not the Nobel Prize for Economics, but the Nobel Peace Prize. Yes. I think he is unique uh, from that point of view. So he won that in 2006, but he's won numerous accolades. With, with the Grameen Bank, though, wasn't Yeah, it? with the Grameen yeah. Bank. It was jointly awarded. Because yeah. they can be, institutions can be awarded. Yeah, I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that yeah. until uh, I researched this particular podcast. Um, so, yeah, numerous accolades, numerous uh, people have sort of lauded him, sort of presidents, yeah. uh, world leaders... In 2008, he was rated the number two in Foreign Policy's magazine's list of the top 100 global thinkers. <laughs> All right. Oh, good. Who's number one? I don't know. I right, knew you were going to ask that. that. That's why I slipped that in. I couldn't be get right. behind their paywall to work out who was number okay. one in that well, year. So enough. if any listeners know, then, then please let they us know. They must be amazing. Uh, so, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to look at the development of microfinance yeah. as a tool of development and also the work of the Grameen Bank, which he helped found. Not a conventional bank, as we shall see. Yeah. yeah. We should probably say for Yunus, although you can disagree with me here, microcredit in the first instance. Yes. Yes, microcredit. And we'll look at what there's a subtle difference yes. between microfinance yeah. A micro credit, as we shall hmm. see. Yeah. So, what we'll do, as we normally do, we'll talk a little bit about his life, his life and times, if you like. Yes. And then we'll move on and look at his main ideas. Yeah, very exciting. Are you happy with that? Have we got the bell? Oh, yeah. We have got the bell, yeah. And I've <laughs> handed it over yes. because, very excitingly, physically we are together. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is. After a long period apart. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, oh you jumped, you've jumped okay. the gun there, yeah. <laughs> Right. right, crack on. So, yeah, so a little bit about his birth and early life. He's born in 1940 in Chattergram. Yeah. Do you know where Chattergram is? No. It's actually nowadays called Chittagong. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which I was going to say it was in Bangladesh, but at the time it would have been the Bengal presidency in British India. Right. Which actually is the same place Amartya Sen was born right so I did look up I was like oh wouldn't it be nice if they actually turn out to be neighbours but there's a good like 16 hour drive between where they both brought up slightly different parts so Chittagong's kind of a port city second largest city in Bangladesh today and here's a fact for you 
If Chittagong was a country, it would rank as the fourth largest economy in South Asia. Wow. Ahead of Nepal, Sri Lanka and Myanmar. Luckily, that's not one of my questions in the quiz today. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so he is a rough contemporary in very broad terms with Amartya Sen, mm. sort of, yeah. So it's flagging up our previous episode there. Yeah, I, I think there's um, a link later. Both from Bengal, albeit from different parts of what is ultimately a very large area. Mm. Yeah. So he was born the third of nine siblings. I think his mum actually had 14 kids, but no, nine of them yeah. sort of lived. Yeah. Uh, he's close to a number of his siblings as well. Some of them are fairly illustrious in their own right, uh, as we'll see. His, his brother um, is a professor of physics at Dakar University and the founder of the Centre for Mass Education in Science, and they teach science to girls in villages. Okay. Which is interesting. There's a, lot, a sort of a similarity there yeah. uh, to uh, Eunice. Yes. Yeah? Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. And his brother, who sadly passed away, uh, Mohammed Yahangir, was a popular TV presenter. So presented politics shows and current affairs okay. shows. So right. a bit like a sort of Bangladeshi Andrew Marr. <laughs> <laughs> which will be lost on our international <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Uh, hopefully not a Bangladeshi Tucker Carlson. Uh, well, anyway. No, crikey. Uh, so his father was a jeweller, uh, and sadly his mother suffered from mental health problems from when he was still quite mm. young. Um, yeah. And in his book, which I know you've read as well, yeah. uh, Banker to the Poor, yeah. Uh, he describes his relationship with his mum. He's obviously extremely fond of her, but she sounds like she had a very challenging uh, sort of mental health condition. But how he describes how the family dealt with it, you know, with sort of good humour and yeah. sort of dignity. Um, yeah, the relationship of the dad and the mum seems... He was so loving, wasn't he, the dad? I, I, yeah. He got that feeling. Yeah, but there's a lot of sort of affection despite what must have been a really yeah, sort of exactly. challenging... That, Situation, you do wonder, or I did wonder, you know, it's not sort of spoiler. He's quite a strong champion of gender equality in what I think you could fairly describe as a fairly patriarchal society. Mm. And you wonder if this sort of um, relationship with his mum had some influence mm. on, you know, the, that, that sort of development. Yeah. He's also got a strong relationship with one of his sisters, you know, who sounds like a really sort of strong sort of character. But in his sort of. Um, book banker to the poor which as well as sort of describing how the grameen bank forms is pretty much a biography isn't it yeah yeah and he, he paints quite a vivid picture of his childhood you know for example he remembers and he must have been quite young here chittagong being bombed by japanese forces mm. you know like you know, you know they play war with his brother and quite funny his dad bought some you know, expel expended Japanese shells to act as plant pots right. to put them on the roof. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which I thought was interesting. So he paints quite a vivid picture of his child. You know, watching work, the world go by in what is you know a really busy city in this sort of jewelry quarter where his dad's shop is. Um, he describes stealing pancakes, or you know, being quite, the first they were quite taste well to of do, food. though, weren't they? Yeah, okay. yeah. Relatively speaking, yeah. yeah, yeah. So not not from a poor background. Yeah. It's fair to say, yeah. Um, so, moving on to his sort of school years, uh, what I thought was really interesting, and I didn't really quite realise the sort of international extent of the Boy Scout movement. Right. But he's a really active Boy Scout. Yeah. yeah were, you in the, were you in the Scouts? I was. I was in the Cubs. Yeah. And then my first year of Scouts, I was bullied a little bit, hmm. and I didn't go back. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I know, you know. 
I think it just remember being hit by a rope. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> By some older boys. I mean, but I love the cub experience. <laughs> I was going to say, you love being hit by a rope. <laughs> no, I was, I was a dual member of um, the Scout Movement and the Boys Brigade Movement. Well, I, did, I, didn't, so I, I didn't know one could be a dual. Well, I dumped the Scouts on a Thursday and just kept mm. on going to the Boys Brigade. For what? I, I'm, I'm familiar with the Boys Brigade. The boys Brigade, a lot of marching. Right, okay. You loved the marching. You entered marching competitions. Right. And then you used to get your... It sounds a little bit odd now, but you used to get your... Badges that you put around your sleeve, didn't you? Did you? Yeah, oh. you had kind of an elasticated kind of band thing around you at the top of your arm, and then you'd add your badges, your coloured badges to that. Oh, yeah. 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 I never made it out of the. I was a cub. Yeah. Did you attain any positions of authority in the cubs? <laughs> no, we had a really good football team. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah. I was a seconder. Right. Our sixes were like sort of leads of your little six, so I was like a, a seconder. What I loved about the cubs was learning how to do you know where you put the bread around the stick and then you cook it over an open fire oh yeah and then you dip it in jam is it bread do, do you do that marshmallows just don't know you get this dough and you wrap it around and oh you right cook okay. this bread over i remember doing that as one of my vivid memories of cubs mm. cooking over an open fire it's lovely it was a really nice experience there we are yeah love the cubs hate the scouts yeah no i, I didn't even make it as far as scouts um I think things were quite sort of loose from a health and safety point of view back then, though. Yeah. I remember one of my friends at school, and this sounds like a terrible story, but I'll tell you anyway. He was a bit foul-mouthed, shall we say. Mm. So at one point, the uh, the scout leader, after being on the wrong end of some sort of verbal invective, uh, tied his legs together and shoved a bar of soap in his mouth. To say you wouldn't do that these days there is probably an understatement. <laughs> At the time, we thought yeah. it was perfectly normal. But, that yeah. bloke is probably now running government somewhere. Huh? Yeah, he probably is, yeah. yeah you know. So, yeah, as I said, during his school years, he, uh, uh, Eunice is an active Boy Scout, and it, it, it enables him to travel quite quite, you know, quite great distances. He, he travels to West Pakistan, because right. uh, you know, at the time when he's young, you've got East Pakistan, yeah. which eventually becomes Bangladesh. Uh, he goes to India. He goes to Canada you know, right. in 1955 to attend Jamborees. Mm. I attended a Jamboree. All right. Yeah, it was in Ashworth Valley in Rochdale, so it's on a slightly sort of smaller scale. Uh, but it was <laughs> yeah. to commemorate some anniversary of the of the scouts, uh, the scout movement. I can't mm. remember. Yeah, we all went camping. It was I enjoyed it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we do digress, as is often the way. Um, he's also, as well as being a sort of an active Boy Scout. Um, He's surreptitiously into photography and the arts, yeah. as well as Hindi and Hollywood films and folk songs. I say surreptitiously, surreptitiously, because his dad basically wasn't keen on the kids doing anything apart from yeah, studying. Study, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he had to be sort of quite cunning about that. Now he's obviously a clever young chap. He wins a scholarship, which allows him to supplement his income. But he also describes how, you know, occasionally he put his hand in his dad's till. Sort of, you know, pill for the odd sort of yeah. attacker, I think it is. Yeah, the currency, yeah, here and there. Just going back to his scout leader, his scout leader, he says, was a real influence on him. Uh, and really sadly, I found this a really sort of poignant moment in his biography. He was murdered during a sort of turbulent period right. uh, of the Civil War in the early 70s. He's quite a frail old man, so yeah, it's sort yeah. of a tragic end to what yeah, sounds like quite a, an inspiring chap. So after high school, uh, he goes to Chittagong College, 
Uh, and he describes these years as the two most exciting years of his life. Yeah, wow. So he must have had a, a great time. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's very active in cultural studies. He won, wins awards for drama. I mean, generally, he is really grateful for his education. So, you know, one quote from him, he says, access to quality education has enabled me to reach far beyond the Bangladeshi village I grew up in. Yeah, he's an all-rounder, isn't he, as well? That is the thing you get get from him like you're saying like creative arty yeah whatever, yeah know. yeah and confident you do get yeah. a sense of oh, confidence he's, so confident. he's really really confident yeah <laughs> yeah you can see there's various points where he's he's speaking to people and you think i bet he got their nose a bit yeah yeah so yeah, yeah he definitely doesn't that confidence so after college he go he studies for four years at dakar university which he, he contrasts as being very four very dull years mm. Yeah, and after that, and this is very exciting for us, he goes back to Chittagong College to teach economics. Yeah, I know. Yeah. This is uh, fantastic. This is us. Yeah, it's basically this is, us. This is why why we we, we kind yeah. of really warm to him. I think. Yeah, he sort of describes himself as being a born teacher, and he does seem to really enjoy it. Yeah. Now, unlike us, although we have obviously got a podcast sideline, <laughs> he also, whilst he's teaching at his old college, he sets up a packaging factory. Almost to prove he can, he sort of makes this point. It sort of proved to me I could yeah. sort of make money if I wanted to. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because another thing I found interesting about that uh, when he's describing setting up this factory, he sort of outlines his father's attitude to debt, and his father is a bit like you know the uh, the Shakespeare character Polonius, you know, never neither a borrower or a lender oh, be right. kind of thing. And he's like, well, no, you know, you know, loans can be good, you yeah, know, yeah. used to sort of um, create wealth in the longer term. So it's quite interesting. The reason I say that's interesting is because later on he faces a lot of, you know, part of his work in developing the Grameen Bank and his sort of lending to sort of poorer individuals is breaking down some sort of mindsets that people have about debt. Yeah. Uh, but one, he says at the time, you know, I was setting up this packaging factory factory gave him a lot of confidence but i mean i must say he does seem like a confident chap yeah <laughs> um so after that period he moves to the u.s on a fulbright scholarship yes. uh, to do a phd and he could, there can't have been many people making that journey from mm. bangladesh to, to, to the u.s at that point yeah um and he, he does paint some quite interesting picture, uh, quite an interesting picture about the contrast between campus life in Bangladesh and campus life in the US. So he goes back to Bangladesh. He describes sort of teaching girls and how they're very much segregated. They file into the class. Mm. They look down. They don't ask questions. And then he compares that with America, where you see, in his words, you know, uh, the teachers, the tutors, you know, sat on the grass chatting to yeah. boys and girls that they teach and so on. So uh, quite interesting. And you do think, again, maybe potentially that influences views on sort of gender equality and so on. <laughs> while, he's in it, while he's in America, he falls in love with TV. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. it's quite trashy TV, which yeah. I thought was quite funny. And interestingly, he finds it, uh, he said he found it hard to work without the TV on. Yeah, that's that a really odd thing, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, having that in the background. You get some kids who say that at school, don't you? Yeah. Oh, I can't work I without know, the TV. Exactly. And now that he said it, you start to believe it more. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Mm. You know, <laughs> I have to have EastEnders on in the background. I really. don't think many Nobel Prize winners do their best work. I'm putting it out there with the TV on. But maybe I'm wrong. Well, I'm yeah. sure a Nobel Prize winner will get in contact with us. 
I'm quite confident. <laughs> um, so when he, he first when he first goes out into America, he goes to Boulder, the University of Colorado, and he really enjoys that. But then from there, he goes to Vanderbilt University. And I don't want to slag off Vanderbilt University because right. I'm sure it's changed dramatically mm. since his time. But he's not that keen on it. Yeah. Uh, he, he says, you know, it's a pretty sort of miserable place and the facilities aren't that great mm. and so on. Um, there's quite a lot of sort of cultural differences he, he comes across um, during this whole period. You know, he talks about showering and keeping some of his clothes. You know, it's, you do get a sense of someone who's slightly a fish out of water, but he does love America. Yeah, it's, it is your yeah. kind of classic... I was going to say Englishman in New York, but obviously yeah. Bangladeshi in... Where is Vanderbilt? Is it called uh, Van- Vanderbilt University? I don't know. Mm. I, I should know that, but I don't know. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm sure... But I've what, been... I, what I found probably the most surprising thing in the book, and I think you're probably going to go on to this now, is, is him falling in life, love and having a... You know, like marrying... Because the, the, he met, he meets his wife. First he does, wife, yeah. We we are going to come on and to then, this, yeah. Like she, she then kind of agrees to go back. I know I'm probably getting, <laughs> but I just think that that whole it seems so spontaneous and sort of irrational, mm. which kind of for me didn't. <laughs> I know it's his life didn't fit in with the rest of the story. If it yeah. was, it was a really, but maybe. Yeah. It's love, isn't it? It's love. It is love, yeah. I'll come to that in one second. Um, Just apart from sort of meeting his first wife, Mm. so first wife, um, that is a spoiler. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, While he's at Vanderbilt, he does really like one professor. I think it's a Romanian professor who apparently never gives any A grades, but he gives Eunice an A. Yeah, he does sound like a real hard ass. Yeah. But Eunice really respects him. Yeah. And actually, he compares favourably this uh, professor to what he saw as quite rigorous sort of teaching he'd had back in Bangladesh. Yeah, and he right. was sort of disappointed with some of the lack of rigour. Right. I'm sure Vanderbilt University is great these <laughs> days, by the way. <laughs> but as you said, towards the end of his time in the US, there's two, I would say, really significant events. One in his personal life and one global political event as we'll see uh, as you say he, he marries he marries his first wife Vera Forostenko she's born in the USSR but had emigrated to the US with her family and was studying Russian literature well, it's quite interesting how he describes their relationship it's almost like she, he gives the impression like she wore him down yeah she's like go on marry me Mohammed yeah. and he's, he's like no 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 it wouldn't work go on marry me marry me yeah, and eventually he, he sort of gives in. Um, it'd be quite interesting to know her account. Yes. Yeah, it would, it would be. <laughs> maybe it's the same, but maybe yeah. it's not. Uh, yeah. But there we are. And there's always two sides to these things, aren't exactly. there? Yeah. Um, but they do marry and they do have a daughter, Monica, more of her later. Um, but like I said, that's his, sort of what's going on in his personal life, but also there's a sort of major event in that... Um, War breaks out, a civil war between the two uh, sort of wings of, of Pakistan. And it's probably worth explaining briefly for people who aren't familiar with the, the geography of that area. If you can imagine India as this triangle uh, sort of coming down into the Indian Ocean, yeah. funnily enough. And then you've got um, on the left, if you like, you've got 
West Pakistan, yeah. as, it, as it was then, and then East Pakistan on the right. But the two halves of the country weren't actually geographically conjoined in any yeah. way. Yeah, which is odd, isn't it? Yeah, it is really yeah. odd. And it's one, you know, it almost goes back goes to, back, yeah, the partition, to partition. Yeah, I mean, these were predominantly um, Muslim parts of mm. British India, if you like, and they decide will be Pakistan, if you like. But then they are, it turns out, as much different as they are similar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and to a certain extent, that's why... Yeah, I'm sure. I don't want to get into the Bangladeshi War of Independence. I'm sure it's really complex, but it does sound uh, the causes of it, at least. But it does sound a particularly brutal yeah, sort of civil war. It yes. sounds horrendous, and in fact, some commentators have described it as um, some of the actions of the West Pakistan Army is genocidal in yeah. nature, and an enormous number of uh, people died. And still, a lot of kind of discussion and argument about that today in mm. terms of numbers I think mm. isn't mm. it is that they don't have a yeah a good figure on the number of people mm. so on a personal level he's in a really difficult position he, you know he, he is quite patriotic I think that's another thing that comes out mm. in, in his biography not in some sort of you know horribly jingoistic way but he's, he's certainly a proud sort of Bangladeshi as it were and he's not able to take part he's in the US but one thing he does do is he, he you know he, through various activities he tries to draw attention within the US to the plight of Bangladesh yeah. and to sort of you know if you like raise awareness and yeah you can and... really see his I don't know kind of political skills I don't know maybe persuasive skills coming through there yeah, you know, like and also an his persistence. Yeah, persistence. Yeah. He is an extremely persistent yeah. person, and organizes people really well. He, yeah, it you know motivates people to do stuff, don't they? Yeah, yeah. he's yeah he's an impressive character. Yeah. So from nineteen seventy two on, he returns to Bangladesh. He's very keen uh, to take part in the reconstruction of what really is a devastated country. Um, I've read some description of the of what, you know the aftermath of the war, and it says I'll, I'll just read it to you. It's not too long. It says in the aftermath of the Pakistani's army's rampage last March, a special team of inspectors from the World Bank observed that some cities looked like the morning after a nuclear attack. Since then, the destruction has only been magnified. An estimated six million homes have been destroyed, and nearly one point four million farm families have been left without tools or animals to work their lands. Uh, transportation and communication systems are totally disrupted. Roads are damaged, bridges out, and inland waterways blocked. So it's, it's an incredible sort of scene of devastation um, that, you know, he's coming back to, if you yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he does feel a bit powerless. At one point, he's coming back from America with a PhD, and he's thinking, oh, I could really help. And, he, and you can see he's got incredible leadership and organisational mm. skills that he did have an enormous amount to offer. And he's placed on some planning commission, but he finds himself doing nothing. And basically, the sense I get from his character is he's not going to accept doing yeah, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> he's got yeah. a really sort of active guy. And so he moves from there to become head of economics at um, Chittagong University. Yeah. And the other thing I'd say about him as well that you really get from uh, the book um, is he's a real problem solver. You know, he just sort of, you know, you think, all right, we've got a problem. How do we solve it? Yeah. You know, it's not so, oh, we've got a problem. Oh, no, what do we? You know, he's like, right, how do we solve it? So a very practical person. You get the impression 
So just to give you one example, when he gets to university, the university is described as a part-time university. And the reason for that is the transport links to it are so poor. You know, right. people are sort of getting the one bus of the day and then they have to get the next one back, you know. So they can't... And so he says, right, he writes a paper about it. You know, this we can't have this. You know, this is... Uh, mm. You know, we want to be a prestigious university. We've got to do something about it. And you get you get the impression of someone who really does lo- love to solve a problem. Yeah. You almost get the impression, you know, you come, you come around, you've got, you got a leaky pike, you've got, oh, you've got a wrench. Yeah, you know? it's a challenge. He loves yeah. a challenge, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah, but... Interestingly as well, while he's there, the proximity of the campus to some of the poorer villages really gets him thinking about poverty and how to solve it. And where poverty ends up is really brought home to him in a, a horrible and substantial way by the famine that sort of follows yeah. almost hot on the heels of the Civil War in 1974. And that really sharpens, if anything's going to, this interest in the uh, the needs of the very poor. It's quite interesting because there is a link here to the episode we did about uh, Amartya Sen, because Sen obviously wrote about famine. Yeah. And when I read a little bit about the Bangladeshi famine, similar to what Sen had said about other famines, it wasn't a problem of a lack of food. Right. You know, it's ultimately an economic problem. Farmers, whatever reason, start hoarding. Um, there's some issue with food coming in due to a US embargo of uh, because uh, Bangladesh at the time is exporting jute to Cuba. And then there's a timing issue because the US lifts its embargo, but then there's a, a time lag before uh, okay. yep. the food comes in. And it's interesting because according to some of the sort of more popular accounts, it's all about this major flooding, which did occur around a similar time of the Brahmaputra River. But when there's been some more academic analysis of it, it yeah, seems to be the consensus yeah. view is it wasn't about a lack of food. It was about, you know, distribution. You're almost going mm. back to the basic economic problem. You yeah, know, yeah. It's not about what's being produced or how it's produced. It's the distribution at the end of things. Who's going to get it and what system is in place to allocate that. So mm. a temporary, at least, sort of failure of, of, of capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you do get a sense as well, you know, another sort of possible cause of the of the famine is this sort of still recovering from the sort of devastating war. Um, but he is really, you know, we often joke about like people with skin in the game. Yes. He really wants to get stuck in. Yeah. So just just to give one example, during this period, he uh, tries to sort of work with local farmers to develop a second rice harvest. Yeah. They've got some a rice harvest at one point in the year, but they can't do another one because of, uh, you know, a lack of sort of water at that time of year. And he's sort of like, what can we do about it? So he's sitting down working with the farmers who are very reluctant, very sort of, you know, suspicious mm. of what he's trying to do. And quite interestingly, he describes how, you know, they've got some like uh, pump in this field, which had come about through some sort of big sort of donation from some sort of development uh, group and so on and basically it's not being used because it's expensive to manage that there hasn't quite been the training how to use it properly and he points to this as as, as an example of how sort of traditional development techniques yeah sort of they're all about you know the big gesture yeah. if you like and and he's again similar to sort of other economists who've looked about no you have to work from the ground up yeah, and you have to look at the problems on the ground no. 
And in some respects, I was reminded of DeSoto as well, you know, this yeah. sort of real strong desire to get right down with the people who are suffering mm-hmm. and say, well, what what are the problems you're experiencing? Well, DeSoto is a yeah. big fan of microfinance, big supporter of it. Yeah, yeah, so I'm not surprised. So by 1976, we get to the, the Big E, which is the foundation of the Grameen Bank. Um, and during that period, he describes some quite comical conversations with traditional banks. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's trying to sort of get off, uh, you know, he's lending to the poor. And, you know, you can see him going along to meet with sort of various bank managers. Uh, and he's quite strident. Uh, and um, it doesn't go well, shall we say. So there's all kinds of conversations. I imagine they found him extremely annoying because yeah. <laughs> he's very direct and extremely persistent. He's asking them lots of difficult questions and coming up with some quite sort of thought-provoking ideas. Interestingly, he questions the whole ideas of, idea of linking loans to collateral. If you remember in our sort of DeSoto episode, yes. one of the problems that um, the poor have in many developing countries, according to DeSoto, is a lack of... Uh, property rights which means that the house which in theory they kind of own can't be used in, as collateral mm. but he goes almost one step further and says why do they need collateral yeah yeah right okay completely spin yeah. banking upside down <laughs> yeah. um so sadly around a similar time to this sort of uh, you know major event in his professional life the launch of the Grameen bank he does separate from his wife not uh, not mm. long after that they have had a child together, but he certainly gives the impression that his wife didn't want to bring up their child yeah, in Bangladesh. She really in Bangladesh. Yeah, I mean, he, he gives the impression he anticipated all of this. Yeah, and that's, again, that's what I don't get about it because it's like, it's not as, you don't get a sense that they had a little trial run. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, before getting married, you think, let's go and try out Bangladesh. Yeah, and then we'll see whether we want to get married or whatever. Do yeah. Yeah, Odd. Love is blind, though. Love is blind. Yeah, yeah, how beautiful. Yeah. So he does get divorced, um, but he does marry again. Yes. So in 1980, he marries Afrozi Yunus. I'm sure she wasn't called Afrozi Yunus before. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, and she was a researcher in physics at Manchester University. No way. Yeah. Manchester. Yeah, my old stomping grounds. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they have a daughter together. Uh, so obviously she's a, obviously an impressive woman in her own right, uh, like so many of the right. sort of partners of economists yes. uh, we've looked at over our various episodes. Mm. But they have a daughter as well who's born in 1986. So we'll come to it a little, in a little bit, but the Grameen Bank, which he founds, ends up being enormously successful, yep. a world-famous institution, and as you mentioned earlier, it's uh, as an institution the co-winner yeah. of the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, it's kind of fifty-fifty between yeah. Old Eunice and the institution itself. I think you mentioned earlier. You know, he, he is really cynical of conventional large-scale development projects, and also he's quite scathing about some of the institutions, mm. such as the World Bank. Although he does warm to the World Bank yeah. under yeah. the leadership of Wolfenson. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, he's very um, suspicious of government. I mean, yeah. there's a bit in the book, isn't there, where suddenly, for me, I felt he kind of goes on a massive kind of, I wouldn't say free market rant, but do you know what like, like, just massively goes on about how important the free market is, no yeah. government intervention, complete, mm. like, mm. 
capitalist, whatever, and mm. you kind of thought, well, I, didn't, I didn't think that would be him, if you know what I mean. I yeah. think, again, it kind of felt a little bit odd. Yeah, and then you kind of thought, actually, no, he's your classic Thatcherite enterprise is everything. Like, the enterprise... He's all about the enterprise culture. He is, but not necessarily, if you take him as his word, with profit as the motive. No, no, he's... Yeah. He, he's it's like he's entrepreneurial about, yeah, social activity. business. Yeah. And, and, but he, he still doesn't obviously mind people making profit because you can see that with the way Grameen have done kind of link-ups with other kind of organisations. But it, it's, it's... Yeah, he's, he's so all about individualism in many respects you know so it's a little bit like you know the um we've got to get around this image of uh, of telling students you're going to be working for someone mm. no you can be your own boss you yeah. know that is it you know we've got to start shifting the debate instead of sending them through school with the assumption they're going to just go into a job we've got to flip that mindset around mm. and think no you are the person who can be an, an entrepreneur and we need to create this enterprise culture yeah. that is missing in, in, in so much of the world. And he's so pro it. It's just mm. unbelievable. But I think that individualism is kind of quite interesting the way he, yeah. he does that because he doesn't want kind of, what well, it's a bit weird. There's a complexity to it though yeah. in that, you know, as we'll say, I don't, when we look at the Grameen Bank, there's also this solidarity lending model. Yeah. So it's not just about the individual. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll, we'll come back to that. So over the next few decades, he wins numerous accolades for his works, uh, culminating the Nobel Peace Prize. And, he, you know, he's still working, though he has been booted out of the Grameen Bank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're falling out with the government. Yeah, they? he did have a falling out with the government. And I read some various sort of theories about that. You know, some were sort of of the opinion that he very briefly sort of dabbled with forming his yes. own political party yeah. and the article I read was almost like the Prime Minister had a long memory and was not happy about that yeah. and sort of thought right he's on my yeah. my list shall we it's say it's interesting isn't it because again <laughs> I had the Soto episode it, we talked about him not being sure whether he should go into politics because it yeah. kind of ruined his reputation and obviously that is something within Bangladesh potentially that happened to Yunus. Yeah, yeah. But we should say, I mean, Gr- the Grameen Bank has spiralled. If you go on to the kind mm. of... Uh, this was going to be part of my quiz, but I didn't put it in. How many uh, Grameen organisations are there on the Wikipedia page? Like the kind of, you know, that has stemmed out kind of, as it were, from, from the Grameen Bank. I don't know. Fourteen. Wow. So you know they they they've really yeah sort of mushroom gone you know like Grameen America Grameen yeah. Danon like linking with companies joint ventures yeah. the Grameen phones Grameen whatever it might be yeah. there's a bit in the book where where um, I don't I don't know, I think if it was Bank to the Poor where you know here's a problem and he just says we'll call it Grameen Telecom right yeah so it's again this kind of <laughs> about problem solving again yeah. oh we need to uh, push exports. So I set up Grameen Export. <laughs> like everything. It's quite, yeah, it's quite odd. Yeah. So, um, shall we start talking about his ideas? Yeah, let's I think get, we've learned let's, enough about his yeah, life. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a quote there, but I'll come back to that later. Um, He's a brilliant storyteller. I think this is a really important thing. Like when he is selling uh, microcredit to the world, 
uh, or, or to whoever it is. He, he uh, and we kind of, we'll come back to this when we do criticism, criticism of him, because he's your kind of qu- classic qualitative versus quantitative data kind of person. Mm. So he is, you know, like, a, it's a bit like arguments in politics at the moment, right? The Brexit debate or whatever it might be, okay? You can push all the data you like, mm. No one cares if you've got a really good story to tell. Mm. And he has got a brilliant story to tell all the time because he just says, I was with this lady. She's been, this happened to her, this happened to her. We lent her this. She paid it back on time. Now she's got an ox, da 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 da. Mm. And her life has done that. And everyone, yeah. and, you, and there's, he obviously litters with it in his yeah. book, doesn't he? And you kind of think, oh, he's brilliant. He's a great this, communicator. Yeah, isn't he exactly. Well, yeah. And, and that's, the thing about then why eventually later on the criticisms come in mm. you kind of think really mm. but I've read mm. all these wonderful stories <laughs> and it's it's that thing about mm. the, the beauty of storytelling mm. but but no one like that links in with your emotion mm. while the data that might turn around and say actually it doesn't really work you know mm. it's like no you know mm. you know anyway we'll come back to criticisms We'll talk about his ideas then. So you mentioned earlier there's a distinction, and you're quite right to say this, between microfinance and microcredit. And to a certain extent, the Green Bank is largely about microcredit. I think that's fair yeah. to say. Would you agree with that? Yes. So microfinance, I mean, the micro bit is just sort of finance on a small scale. Yeah. So it could, in theory, be you know lending very small amounts of money to poorer clients. It could also be though something like micro insurance, you know, sort of, um, lend, you know, insuring people for relatively, you know, items which are relatively low in value. Uh, you know, having set up a payment system, all these things could come into. But in a sense, it's providing financial services on a small scale uh, to poorer communities who yeah. can't often access sort of financial services. Well, we teach, don't we, in a, um, you know limits to growth and development yeah. and the little bit on our syllabus is access to credit and finances yeah. banking and credit or something yeah, like yeah. that and so this is the key bit here that literally the poorest in society just cannot yeah. access a, a missing market isn't it is yes. how you kind of describe yes. it yeah so in a sense what microfinance is, is designed to do is to reach these sort of excluded um, peoples um, they might be geographically isolated in the sense there's no banking nearby or more likely it's not financially viable for the bank to lend them money and i'll come back to that in a moment so if you think about it let's let's say you're a young entrepreneur or not necessarily a young entrepreneur in rural bangladesh one can you find a bank nearby possibly not and secondly if you can the bank may say to you look it's just not worth our while to lend you money if we lend you this relatively small amount of money to you know, make your business flourish, the cost for us of setting up your account, the transaction costs, if you like, might exceed any potential profit we might make. Yeah. And therefore, it is very simply not worth our while. Oh, and the mindset is as well, the poor won't pay it back. Yeah. And secondly, banks often want collateral. Mm. 
And we know from our DeSoto episode, or we might know more generally, you might not own anything to act as collateral. Or if you do own something, you don't have formal enforceable property yeah. rights uh, to your home. So banks are going to think it's not worth our while. And he was quite interesting. He, he, he drew up in his book quite a long list of reasons. And it was almost funny as to why banks wouldn't lend. And it yeah. was stuff like Paul won't pay it back or what you're trying to do, it won't work in our culture. And all, yeah. all these sort of, you know, ill-informed prejudices, if you like, mm. as to reasons why tra- the traditional banking sector wouldn't lend to poor people. Yeah. And so for his point of view, it leaves the poor at the mercy of loan sharks, you know. Yeah. Or, if they're not loaning any money, just simply mired in extreme poverty. So in some respects, it's a really simple idea. It's the setting up of a bank that lends small amount of money. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some little facets to what they do, which, again, are distinctive. So it's a, a little bit more than that. And part of that, one of the things that the Grameen Bank is, is best known for, is its system of solidarity lending. So you will lend uh, to individuals, but they will form part of a group. And the group exists to almost make sure that everyone in the group repays. And if one person in the group doesn't repay, the Grameen Bank will not lend them money again. So it's trying to encourage a little bit of normative pressure, but also mutual support uh, within the group to ensure that things get paid, which again is distinctive. It's not something that the normal uh, banking sector, if you like, uh, would employ. And interestingly as well, it lends almost entirely to women. And if you think about that, that is, is, is controversial. You know, it's a, it's a highly patriarchal society, Bangladesh, yeah. particularly when he first sort of starts out this bank. But from his point of view, there's various reasons for that. Firstly, it's sort of on a very simple level. It's about gender equality. Why not? Women don't have a voice. They should have. But also he felt that women were best placed to encourage other development goals. So, for example, the Grameen Bank would have a kind of I don't know, almost like a cult-like sort of philosophy that if, you, if you're part of our crew, you send your kids to school. Yeah. And women will be best placed to sort of expedite yeah, that. Yeah, these kind like. of 16... Yeah, it's a, it's a sort of a set of values yeah. which are embodied in this sort of 16 decisions which came out of some sort of conference of sort of, you know, lenders from different areas. So, Grameen borrowers are strongly encouraged to have these sort of positive social habits. So it's not simply about, oh, lend money and off you go. It's, uh, you know, you've got to sort of almost follow our philosophy. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the thing that's oh, it's not massively important, but obviously a lot of people say, oh, you know, Eunice was the man who set up microcredit or whatever. But... Um, I don't know if you remember, but when when we did the um, Lewis episode, yeah, yeah, and we talked about the kind of uh, Caribbean lending, kind of I think it's called a susu. I think there's something like that where they they have these kind of cooperative bonds where people bring their money to the table and then someone borrows from it to buy a house, and it was all about kind of inter lending within their community. Yeah. yeah. So these kind of things had gone on for you know, a while. Yeah. But what he did, as, you know, quite clearly from how far it's gone, is that he had a kind of a model that was sort of scaled up. 
Or they managed to kind of spread it further, as it as it were. Did you have you got the line where he talks about they're saying about uh, the traditional banks said I'm going to write to so and so and ask why you're only lending to male, no female. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he, he then writes back saying, well, I'll, I'll write a letter to then about asking why you're only lending to males. <laughs> you know, and he's he, again. I love the the kind yeah. of uh, attack that he does. He's ballsy, isn't yeah, he? He's, yeah, yeah. He's proper on it. So the, the 16 decisions, yeah. which is this sort of list of things which uh, you, you kind of sign up to. Um, I mean, they're, they're sort of quite... It's a little bit cult-like almost. It's like, I'll just pick out a few. Yeah, it reads like an alcoholic anonymous. It does, yeah. The 10-step program. Yeah, exactly. 12-step program, sorry. Yeah. We shall follow and advance the four principles of the Grameen Bank. Discipline, unity, courage and hard work in all walks of our lives. Two, prosperity we shall bring to our families. Three, we shall not live in a dilapidated house. We shall repair our houses and work towards constructing new houses at the earliest opportunity. We shall grow vegetables all year round. We shall eat plenty of them and sell the surplus. So it's quite, you know, it's quite full on, isn't it? But I guess as part of it as well, they have to sort of learn certain things because another obstacle which, you know, the traditional about, oh, we can't involve ourselves with the poor, they're illiterate, they won't be able to sign the documents. And so there is an element of, okay, and again, you get that problem-solving aspect to his approach to nearly everything is, well, we'll teach them financial literacy then. Uh, Well, it's a verbal contract as well, isn't it? Yeah. They basically, you know, meet them and uh, that's it. And it is all based on trust. So it's Mm. very... There's no, uh, you know, there's no sort of legal instrument. There's no written contract. But there are, there's there's loads of sort of really interesting innovations. He kind of comes to the view that, you know, if they have to repay loans as a lump sum, it might not happen. So we'll actually have a daily repayment. Yeah. So you have to pay back a tiny bit each day. Yeah. And then people will almost to then make it weak. Not notice. And there's almost, yeah, but there's almost an element of behavioral economics in there. It reminded me a bit of our sort of Kahneman episode. Um, but just another thing you have to do as part of it um, the borrowing members have to save as well so they're not just borrowing money they have to save and part of that saving has to go into uh, a kind of mutual fund which is for the whole group if they they hit problems as a contingency if you like so to a certain extent going back to the solidarity lending it works on the basis that people within the group will create some normative pressure mm. which means that you know everyone goes along and, and pays back their little bit yeah. yeah which is it's a really sort of interesting idea but the um, way the way again he describes uh the first time he tries to get a group together is brilliant in the book mm. as well isn't he where he goes along with obviously a female student and he's kind of waiting outside because obviously yeah, he's not allowed to go inside the go tent in, yeah. and things like that and then does it start raining and he ends up going inside a tent yeah and then you can kind of hear yeah. them next door talking and then eventually that leads to him being able to speak to them all and it, again just the book obviously we're going to get onto recommendations but clearly read read the book because yes. it is a really easy read it's a good it? read yeah it's yeah. easy to read yeah yeah so just to go on about, um, to finish off this little bit, just a bit about sort of gender equality, you know, he, he describes how women used to hold less than 1% of bank loans in Bangladesh. So he creates Grameen, he says, I want to make sure that half of the borrowers were women. And then he's like, when he said, approach them, oh, I don't know what to do with money, I'm afraid of money, give it to my husband. And he says, I thought, 
This is not the voice of the woman. This is the voice of history, of the system, which created fear in their minds. It's really fascinating, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. You do wonder where that passion comes yeah. from um, to challenge the sort of gender politics of what is ultimately a very traditional yeah. sort of patriarchal society. I mean, there's a, <laughs> there's a story which I shouldn't find funny, but it, it almost was funny. There's this story of him walking along with some bloke whose wife was a lender. And he's, he kind of said, oh, yeah, initially I was opposed to sort of, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> my wife story. being involved. But, you know, you know, you know yeah, I'm kind of all right with it now. But I do miss beating my wife. Yeah. It's a really <laughs> odd story. He just drops it in and you're like, oh, my God. And Eunice is a bit like, uh, maybe you can find another way to release your tension. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> you're thinking. I know. And then it came, it's, it didn't, there was something came out that, that was basically a common thing, wasn't it? It yeah. reduced... It reduced... Beating of wife. But interestingly, in this case, he partly doesn't beat his wife anymore because his wife's little crew, right, the yeah. fellow members of this solidarity <laughs> lending group, yeah. basically went round and harassed him. Yeah. Uh, think, <laughs> so, yeah. But I thought that's... Um, so in a sense, you, you can see him sort of treading around these, you know, very patriarchal structures, but you get a sense of, you know, the old expression, sort of softly, softly catching monkey. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. if we just sort of confront them head on, yeah. we might not get it. There's something very subversive, yeah. ultimately, about what he's doing. Mm. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get on to in criticisms, uh, oh, you know, microfinance and so on, but I think the gender aspect to it of is actually really radical. Yeah. You know, whatever you say about it, I mean, you might say, oh, and we'll, we'll see when we come on to criticisms. There are significant criticisms. Mm. The gender, the, the, the approach to sort of trying to entice sort of women into the formal economy yeah. is, is really, I think, very radical. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's again, go, going back to our, our, our last podcast about Sen, it's about going to, you know... At, giving people freedom isn't yeah. it and, and development as freedom but you know and kind of going to these people about a, a kind of linked to capabilities what do you need mm. to go and everyone's different and, yeah. and that's basically what he does it's not imposing there's a there's a great quote that he talks about here which when he does a speech somewhere he says um uh, I find myself thinking of Jobra and my very first borrowers and how they radically changed me from being a bird's eye view economist who taught elegant theories in a classroom to being a worm's eye view practitioner, mm. helping to affect real and lasting change in people's lives. Mm. I love that. That is yeah. your classic skin in the game stuff, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's like it does, getting it, it your did, hands dirty. It did remind me of the Soto as well. Yeah. It's that same like, oh, you, exactly. you can write your books in your yeah. in your you know your academic quarters. Yeah. Get out there, speak to people, yeah. see what's going exactly. on, and see what problems people actually yeah. face. Um, it's quite, um, I mean, there is more to him simply than microfinance. I mean, he talks a lot about social enterprise. Yeah. His Nobel um, Prize lecture speech is worth watching from that point of view. Right. You get a sense of his broader worldview. So I would recommend that to uh, listeners. He talks about ownership models as well, the poor owning shares in social enterprises yes. and so on, which is actually his, is the Grameen model. Yeah, I mean, his whole um, other, uh, the other book I read of his was um, three zeros was all mm. about this the social business model and you've got to move away as we teach in the classroom profit maximization mm. you know as the key fundamental thing there are people out there there is though a bit of me that when i was reading it, there was a naivety to it 
Mm. You know, I'm not really harsh because I've seen so many police private. But you're kind of thinking, mate, you mm. know, I've just, just, it, it, it just sensed that what he was talking about there wasn't going to happen. Well, but we'll wait and see. We'll see. Yeah. So I've got a few quotes from him, yeah, go which for it. sort of summarise and that, then I'll finish. But so here's one In my experience, poor people are the world's greatest entrepreneurs. Every day they must innovate in order to survive. They remember poor because they do not have the opportunities to turn their creativity into sustainable income. And that's yeah. been a common thread in a number of our episodes, so I did like that. Money begets money. If you don't have that, you wait around to be hired by someone at the mercy of others. If you have that money in your hand, you desperately try to make the best use of it and move ahead. And that's generating income for yourself. You do get the sense in that quote of what you were saying about he assumes that everyone... Yeah, it's the faith in the the individual and the entrepreneur and that they can solve everything. And I know, obviously, we talk about the kind of the group of five or, you know, that collective. But there's still an element of of individualism there. Mm. Um, uh, uh, And and the government shouldn't be helping at all there in many respects. Mm. Um, Just a couple more. And this sort of, again, links to what you were saying about, you know, him having skin in the game. He says, I began my career as an economics professor, but became frustrated because the economic theories I taught in the classroom didn't have any meaning in the lives of poor people I saw all around me. I decided to turn away from the textbooks and discover the real life economics of a poor person's existence. Um, And another one I liked as well, he says... There are cultural issues everywhere in Bangladesh, Latin America, Africa, wherever you go. But somehow when we talk about cultural differences, we magnify those differences. And I quite like that because I think what I took from that is just this idea that ultimately we are all the yeah. same, you know, and it's all because you can say, oh, yeah, poor people in Bangladesh, they're so different. Or like yeah. people in America, they, you well, know, that's why like, no, everyone's the yeah. same everywhere. And it, it, the more we talk about differences... It seems to magnify them. We don't talk enough yeah. about what's similar between people. And you can see that's why the, that he was so <clears throat> confident about the model being able to roll out to America. Mm. You know, just find poor people in America. What do you mm. want? What do you need to set up a business? Yes, it might not be $20. It will be $200. Yeah. But we'll, you know, it's, it's still the same thing. You know what you need yeah. to get on your feet. And you can see that with... In America, you know, where it's like, I just need to get some hair tongs or whatever to set up yeah, my hair business or whatever. Yeah. So it's very much like like that. Yeah. And lastly, I don't think any human being wants to retire as long as they enjoy the life. And I'm enjoying the life. Yes. And he does. He's got so much energy, hasn't he? Yes. Right. So let's move on. Okay. Uh, so what do the critics say about Eunice? Or more specifically microfinance as a strategy for development i guess the key criticism is on the ground what has microfinance been used for and i always watch this in class but there's quite a good sort of um and it's it's, it was filmed some time ago now but there's a, a news night um focus on microfinance and it looks at how in a part parts of india i think it's anwar pradesh yes um there are groups of people using microfinance and in effect it's to yeah. smooth over consumption or they're actually taking out loads of little loans almost taking advantage of the sort of lack of regulation in the system to do things like pay for their kids' weddings yeah. and pay for their... And there was a series of sort of rural suicides where yeah. um, the girls involved were so ashamed that their, their family had gone into so much debt and weren't able to repay it 
uh, to fund this wedding that they committed suicide. So in a sense, it's like without any regulation, are people actually borrowing to fund some entrepreneurial activity or are they simply using it to smooth over consumption? And there are interest rates as well, so it's not necessarily yeah. um, well, a, a cheap point. option. That, that classic thing about he wanted to have a discipline in there, didn't he? That it was like, no, you need to pay it back and then it becomes self-financing mm. and so on. Mm. But that discipline of paying back mm. you know, means that you'll work harder, be incentivized, and, mm. and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can end up in a, in a mm. debt trap. And certainly... I mean, the, sorry, just quickly, whether yeah. Andhra Pradesh, I mean, that that was a huge, huge kind of problem for the mi- microfinance kind of mm. industry. I mean, what I find interesting when you go into delving a little bit more about the criticisms of it is um, there's not necessarily criticisms of the original no. microcredit. Yeah. It's the new microfinance yeah. industry yeah. that ultimately then gets taken up by the institutions yep. you would see Eunice being critical of in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And, and to a certain extent, I do see the criticisms, but I kind of thought, well, is that actually a criticism of microcredit or is it just someone applying the microcredit badge yeah. to what is in effect just normal dodgy lending practices yeah. Yeah. yeah and there was an interesting thing about capping interest rates at that point because with the microfinance it just became a profiteering industry mm. and then i read an article about well i think in, in india they're going to cap interest rates mm. but then there was a concern about well hold up a second that then might actually take away some of these facilities that the poorest people do need it, it's it's all about um you know, what was what was he trying to solve? If he was trying to deal with poverty, yeah. then the data shows it doesn't work. Yeah. But if you want to help poor people, it has worked in terms of accessing financial instruments. And mm. it means that they can tide themselves over. But you're right, it, mm. it moved from a, a situation where it was supposedly about investment spending mm-hmm. and then suddenly it becomes about consumer spending. And you do wonder whether the model originally outlined by the Grameen Bank is quite being followed in all these other nominally microfinance enterprises around the world. Yeah. I think there's some quite... Are they doing all the things that Grameen was doing? Because you kind of think... Yeah. Maybe you needed all the different elements rather than just, oh, we're just lending to poor people. And he's yeah. a bit like, no, 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 no. We've got a very specific yeah, model very with vision. all yeah. of these different aspects yeah. to it. And if you don't follow all of the aspects, it's not really what we were and doing. you need someone yeah. sort of like him to impose that model. And that's the problem about rolling it out globally, that you're not always going to have someone like him at the helm who is going to be so focused on... You know these things, and and he admits himself. You see interviews with him when people go on a, a, about um, the downfall in microfinance and how it hasn't helped. But and he gets very very irate about it, saying, you know, these are other practitioners mm. of it. This isn't Grameen. Yeah, yeah, and we need to make sure that we separate that. But you know, again, when you when you go and when you have a look at the assessments. Of of microcredit, 
it hasn't again got the reward. Did you see any sort of studies which focus specifically just on the impact of grooming? No, I put yeah. I put it on Twitter because I asked someone who never mm. replied saying, oh, have you, can you see this specifically? So the biggest cr- book that I'll, I'll talk about later that criticises um, microfinance talks about the microfinance model mm. or, or he describes it as... N- new mfis you know yeah and so he then goes into that but but they do say with regards uh, assessments is really fascinating so i've mm. got some things about um they looked at impact assessments of and everyone goes oh yeah mfis you know re- doing really well but with the original impact assessments it was mfi versus people who didn't get any money at all mm. and so you know how if you're going to chuck money into a village mm. it's probably going to help somewhere yeah. they're not having money yeah. and so the, the the set up the assessment was pretty poor in the first place because yeah. they didn't obviously kind of trial stuff there's a thing called um displacement effects mm. which um they kind of didn't look at and that's a really interesting thing because he says you, you just mentioned the quote about how tech specs had no meaning to, to him mm. now um obviously when you teach um, theory of the firm which mm. we've discussed before and perfect competition it's really difficult isn't it to kind of think well what is you know perfect competition it doesn't really exist does mm. it you know mm. these assumptions that we make about perfect competition but if you think if you think about microfinance or microcredit what kind of businesses do those people who are borrowing small sums of money get into they ultimately have to be perfectly competitive markets don't they because they have to have incredibly low barriers to entry and exit, mm. don't they? Yeah. It's got to be pretty much perfect information yeah. okay, to enter these markets. So what, what the argument is, is that people were getting uh, the finance, entering this market, and obviously classic supply shifts to the right. Yeah. This then pushes the price down yeah. because there's no kind of control over yeah. how many people you have. Yeah. And then... When you push the price down, then that means their income yeah. becomes lower and then it becomes harder for them to get yeah. back there. So there's a really interesting one. They talk about the Grameen phone. Do you, do you remember that? When they have the phone ladies. No. So they, they yeah. lend the money to um, these women in the village who become the phone ladies of the village. So people go and pay them to phone people and contact yeah. and stuff like that. But whoever wants to have a phone, they lend the money to. Yeah. So in... In our country, obviously, you have um, regional things. So I, I got my car chipped yeah. right, not long ago, and I got chips away when yeah. I come out. And I said this to the kids at school. I said that when he came out and he did my bump or whatever it was, or I said, oh, you know, where do you, where do you work around that? He goes, mm. right, this is my region, mm. you know, Hertfordshire, you know, mm. that, that. And there's a North Hearts region, there's East Hearts, whatever. And we all have our separate... We're not allowed to go into each other's parts. Right. In the developing c- countries, you know, mm. where microcredit was happening, mm. they had none of that. Mm. So ultimately, they were just flooding, mm. you know. And what happens in perfect competition, when you kind of increase the supply, the price goes mm. down, suddenly you get losses being made, mm. people can't pay back, and then that's it. And mm. it really made me think about perfect teaching of perfect competition yeah. through the use of microfinance because just by their very nature they have to be those kind of markets yeah i'd say sort of two things about that firstly one of kind of agreement in that almost 
if everyone is an entrepreneur, which is almost what he wants, <laughs> yeah. then entrepreneurship does mean losses. And when you're looking at people who are living on the margins anyway, yeah. that losses can be really quite significant, you know. Um, but I would also say that, I don't know, I just come back to the same the same thing. I'm not sure that the Grameen Bank has quite been applied but that was that yeah. was Grameen phones. That was so Grameen. That was yeah. Grameen. Yeah. And when they did yeah. that study, they yeah. were kind of like. So sometimes we don't see the wider knock-on impact. But again, classic kind of stuff with economics. You know, what's the opportunity cost of of this money? So if you yeah. think about now, because he's such a great storyteller, mm. and again, you can see how much money he has raised within the financial community. Mm. That's now been completely pumped into this silver bullet of a model, and everyone yeah. is basically saying well, hold up, what we're not doing now is we're not building an, in, an industrial base, we're not mm. supporting small and medium enterprises yeah. that could scale up and, and kind of get some economies of scale. Yeah. You basically have uh, an informal sector that you are supporting that has got no potential for real growth. Mm. And it's interesting because if you go and have a look at like Bangladesh at the moment, I mean, they've got fantastic growth rates. Mm. And you would think like when people were describing their success story... It would be, well, the success has come thanks to, you know, the micro-loans move, whatever. Yeah. There's nothing like that. It's, yeah. it's the, the industrialization yeah. of the clothing industry over mm. there. Uh, funnily enough, remittances, remittances being sent back yeah. and all that kind of stuff. No mention of, of these mm. little things. So it's kind of, it is quite interesting. So that was a, mm. a kind of another criticism about they're Impact. so small scale. Yeah. They can't take off. And, and that money would have been better... Um, funneled into to kind yeah, of although to be fair you can argue a huge amount of sort of development type money has been well like his example of that yeah. pump going to the village and yeah. it goes into the village but no one's taught how to use it and there's no consideration of how um, it's going to be kept up you know who's going to pay for the keeper it's just going to yeah. end up rusting but who's going to like polish it or pay for spare parts and if you do that then it's just a complete waste of money it's a white elephant ultimately yeah, yeah. Um, oh no it is and, and you kind of think yeah. is it yeah. worse spent or could it be part of a solution you yeah. know it's like um, and in a sense giving people a sense that they're not powerless that seems to me to have some kind of value as well yeah just what I, well, I don't know. Have you got any more criticism? I haven't. No. The, fi- the final criticism is is obviously this thing about empowering women, and about why do they pay back more? Mm. Because of the fact that they, the argument is that they can be much more easily pressurized, and so this is another thing that they say is that are you really empowering women or are you just frightening women to pay back? <laughs> the loans and and that is another kind of key criticism is that is that really the case and and then you've Mm. had you know what aren't you know the the thing is he he wanted to replace money lenders Mm. you know who put pressure on these people but now Mm. you've got ultimately the gang of four or five putting real pressure on mm. to the individual maybe lent them money and then you've got mm. in individuals who you know who, who now work for the new MFIs hassling them and, and stuff like yeah. that and that's why you could see why there's this massive suicide rate and, and, and things like that in these countries yeah I think 
to be fair, I, I will just come back to the same sort of rebuttal. It's certainly when I was watching this, and I would, I'll, I'll recommend it later on, this sort of Newsnight um, excerpt about microfinance. Almost certainly what was happening in India was not sort of along the sort of Grameen model. Yeah. It was definitely people out to make sort yeah. of a quick book, as it were, out of the situation. No, and he, he brought in this, <laughs> this thing, and he knew it himself because he brought in this kind of... Um, I think it's something like microfinance transparency model or, 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 and there was another kind of um, an alliance for free and fair finance. So within the community, they know there's rogue people out there, but that's the thing. If you're going to sell it and sell it and sell it and sell it, you're going to lose control of it. And, and yeah. Oh, so just one final thing. There's the thing about with the assessments as well. Um, There was an argument that, because you get a 95% payback rate, that makes it automatically a success. Mm. And, you know, it's not purely about the payback rate, it's then what ultimately what they've done with it. So yeah. there's loads of different crit- criticisms of it. And you can see people, you know, there's a video by Jason Hickel who's kind of talking about it as well. And, and you can find loads of things. The the most recent Nobel Prize winners, isn't it? Duflo and... Yeah, yeah. Uh, Banerjee, yeah. Banerjee. I mean, they've done now, I mean, this is the big thing about microfinance isn't it is that they have now done random controlled trials mm-hmm. which were never there in the past yeah. and they have basically shown that they do not work from a poverty point of view mm. but that doesn't mean they're not good for the poor no and i think that's important <laughs> to say because it has given them you know time to tide them over and mm. pe- poor people need that and it's so that's a really crucial element to it but ultimately it's not a silver bullet it's not a silver what bullet. What did Eleanor Ostrom say? I don't know. There is no silver bullet? No. There, <laughs> there is no panacea. <laughs> Good impression. Okay. Right, come on. Moving on. That was quite loud. Okay. Food time. What are we? This is exciting because obviously I haven't been here for a while yeah. eating. What are we eating today, Pete? That has a spurious link to the economist in question. I'm expecting something spicy. Well, you are going to get something spicy. <laughs> yeah. So he does like his food. Right. I think that's very clear. Um, for example, he describes uh, in the mid-70s an Eid feast. And I've got to say, it sounded delicious. Yeah. He describes as well how he found US food a bit bland. So mm. there's quite a lot of talk of food. Uh, yeah. Again, I think I mentioned earlier, he describes how when he was young, his mum used to make him a kind of pancake called a pitha. Right. And he's always like, oh, I'll taste that, mum. I'll just check it's okay. Is yeah. that what we're having? No. He describes, and you know when I said he, he's early, he used to sort of lift a bit of money from his dad's till to sort yeah. of fuel his lifestyle. Um, he describes how he used to buy something called an aloo chop. Exciting. Which is basically a potato cutlet. All right. Which I thought sounded delicious. It's basically potato stuffed with mash and onion right. and then uh, deep fried. And you made that? I've made it for you. Oh, I'm very I, I think I think you'll enjoy it. Have you tried it? I tried it earlier. I have to confess, and I did enjoy it. Okay, excellent. And he used to drink it with a jasmine tea. So that's what you're going to get. Wow, thank you. Yeah, so I will go and get that now. Okay, Gav, so you've now got your aloo chop. Yeah. And your jasmine it. tea. Yeah, looking forward to it in my Economics in 10 mug. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Which is nice. Now. So I'll tuck him. While I'm tucking in, we're going to have some quiz time. Uh-huh. Okay, so here we go. Uh, obviously, hopefully at this point, Nick will cue the music. Okay, this is a Bangladesh quiz. Right, looking forward to it. 
What is the average traffic speed in Dakar? Is it A, five kilometers, B, seven kilometers, or C, 10 kilometers an hour? Um, no idea, middle one, seven? Correct. Yes. What we're trying to show there is basically when you go there, it's very slow to get around. Okay, at the heart of old Dakar, Dakar, is Shankarni Bazaar. A right. 200 metre long lane. Right. How many people live on that lane? Is it A, 2,000 people, B, 5,000 people, or C, 10,000 people? How long is it again? 200 metres long. Go for the biggie, 10,000. Yes! Oh my god, I'm on fire! I know! This two out of two! This is unusual. That, so I want our listeners to think about that, a 200 metre long lane has 10,000 people living in it. I looked this up, Pete, all right? Your village has 1,983 people in it, apparently, according to our census. Mm-hmm. My village has 4,496. So in our combined villages, yeah. that 200 metre long lane has more people in it. Oof. That's something, isn't it? Twice I'm, as many. I'm hoping that's what they're getting at home. Yeah. <laughs> OK, question three. Sheikh uh, Hasina, yeah. has been Prime Minister in Bangladesh for how many years? Oh, oh sorry. Eight years, <laughs> ten years or twelve years? Twelve. It is twelve years. She is the longest serving uh, female. Um, She's the one who fell out with Eunice. Hmm. Yeah. You know what's interesting about her? Well. She is the aunt of Tulip Stick. I might have said her name wrong. Who is a Labour MP for Hampstead and Gilbert. Tulip Stick. Oh, is it? Oh, I don't know. I Tulip Sadiq. Yeah, I might be making yeah. as well. Uh, Bangladesh has the second lowest obesity rate in the world at 5%. Which country has the lowest? Is it A, Vietnam, B, Cambodia, or C, the Philippines? Can you repeat the options? Vietnam, Cambodia, Philippines. Philippines. Oh, first one you got oh, It was Vietnam. Mm. Okay, which of these is not true? Is it A, it has the longest beach in Asia? B, it was home to the biggest heist in recent history? As, uh, or C, um, hold on, was it the, oh, they are the reason UNESCO have an International Mother Language Day, which is on the 21st of Feb. Um, I'm going for the highest one. What? It's no. wrong. No, it's not wrong. Mm. Yeah, they were aimed to, apparently it was done online, they aimed to steal one billion, but got away with 101 million. And this is interesting, they only caught them due to a spelling mistake, because someone spelt foundation, uh, F-A-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. There you go. It it has the longest beach in Asia, is not true, but it does have the longest, no, interrupted beach. So basically they're all true then? No, because I looked up. <laughs> What's the long- no, because it doesn't have the longest beach. Longest uninterrupted beach? Yeah, What's the there's difference? something. Well, I looked it up and they basically said that they differentiate the two. <sighs> you can't say it's the longest beach in Asia. Well. Anyway, what did you get? Three, three out of five. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> I was um, going to say, that's a poor question. <laughs> 
Can I just say the the um, UNESCO ha- uh, International Mother Language Day on the twenty first of Feb is related to the Civil War mm. because um, Pakistan, I think, didn't want Bengali yeah, to yeah, be used yeah. as no, they wanted the, it to be Urdu. I think. Yeah, yeah, and so they then basically massacred these people, and mm. um, and then from that the campaign came about this International Mother Language mm. Day. So kind of mm. quite interesting. But anyway, anyway, three out of five in your Bangladesh quiz. I'd just like to point out, this food is delicious. Do you know what? I think it could be mm. my best food that I've made for you. Yeah. I think it's nice, genuinely. I think, I think I'm in agreement. And do you know what? It, it, it makes me miss the fact that I didn't taste anything during the cinema. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, bless you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What is your favourite story about Eunice that you came across from reading up on him? Well, there's a couple I liked. <laughs> When he's relatively young and in the US, this waitress kept on asking him how, how he wanted his breakfast and he just wasn't used to the sort of choice in America. And he's quite shy, so she keeps asking him, like, you want fries with that? And he's like, yeah, 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 head down. <laughs> Coffee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eggs? And he's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do you want your eggs? And he's like, he couldn't believe it. He thought he was being wound up. Mm. And it, he said it was a real insight into sort of the choice available in yeah. America. But it's not my favourite. Right. So my favourite is, when he was a kid, he had a favourite children's magazine called Shuktara. And what they'd do is, the the magazine would run competitions and you could get a free subscription and then they'd publish the name of the winner. It is a good one. So he'd pick one of the names and write to the magazine to say, oh yeah, I'm so-and-so. I've actually changed my address. (laughs) I'm really (laughs) delighted to have won this subscription. Could you send it to him? And then he'd get it sent, not to his own address, but to next door. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) That's a good, it's a really good story. That is a good one. (laughs) Yeah, like it. Okay. We're trying to appeal to the younger demographic and all the geeks out there. So if Eunice was a character in the Marvel Universe or Star Wars, who would he be and why? Can I say... We need to change this question. I'm really running out of characters. Oh, I've got... I feel like we've done them all. I've got some. Oh, interesting. Right, so I'll come out with mine then and hopefully you'll do something more interesting. Right, I probably won't, but... Okay. So Star Wars, very self-confident, as we've said, old Eunice, taking on the evil empire, in his view. I'm going to go for Poe Dameron. Never, never, don't know that person. Poe Dameron? From all the recent ones, you know, the sort of fighter pilot, like, who's... Sort of a bit impulsive. Poe. Poe, yeah. No. no. <laughs> the main I mean, character I mean, in the new ones. My recent knowledge of them is not is not great. Okay, oh, but thank you. Thank you for that. And then Marvel. Yeah. I was looking for someone who sort of defends the poor. Right. And the character I kept thinking of, I've already had Daredevil. Mm. So then I thought, he's quite patriotic. Yeah. So I'm going to go for Black Panther. Seem very proud of Wakanda. Wow. Uh, and also, well, no, that's it. That's all. Okay. I well, I went down the route of that he had to be a teacher. Right. So I looked up all the famous schools in Marvel, mm-hmm. and um, you've got Reed Richards. Is he a teacher? We've yeah. had Reed Richards before. For, of the Future Foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Now I like the Future Foundation because it sounds like a grameen organisation. <laughs> And encourages field work. Mm. Okay, but if you don't like Reed Richards, we've had him before, have we? I think we've had him before. Okay, Charles Xavier, because he likes helping out young people with gifts they can't understand or control. 
Have we not had that before? <laughs> I'll go with that. Okay. My if Star I can't Wars remember, one. the readers can't the recommend Star it. Star Wars oh, one. Yeah. I've gone for Uncle Owen. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, do you know what his real name is? Owen Lars. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uncle is he Owen. married to Baru? <laughs> like, he is. But you know how uh, he's a problem solver, isn't he, Eunice? Mm. Now, apparently, Owen Lars, or Uncle yeah. Owen, was a moisture farmer living on a desert planet. Oh, MG. Yeah, so he obviously came up with a solution to deal with the issues, understood the market, and made a success of his life. <laughs> well, until he obviously get killed by the stormtroopers. Yeah. Yeah, I but, still think we need to change your question. <laughs> it's getting increasingly desperate. <laughs> we'll go for Uncle Owen. Yeah, oh. and I'm not doing. I'm not doing Black Panther. I'm at Charles. Oh, Charles. Like Charles. Okay, Johnny. You're getting the patriotic thing, though. No, uh, yeah. no, say no. What books would you recommend if people wanted to learn more about Eunice or some of his ideas? Well, definitely his own um, book, Banker to the Poor. Yeah. I think it's ghost-written. I think he wrote it with someone. Yes. And maybe that explains the sort of rather exuberant tone. But maybe it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, it's well worth a read. He's, he's had a fascinating life. Mm. And it does talk in some detail about the formation of Grameen and his main ideas. Uh, and it's very easy to read. Yeah. And the other thing I would recommend, not literature, but I've mentioned it a couple of times, is a YouTube clip. It's about 11 minutes long and it's a Newsnight piece it's about eight years old now, but it talks about... I think at the time, microfinance was particularly uh, being critiqued. Yeah. Uh, so I'd, I'd recommend that if you're interested in sort of critiques. Yeah. What about you? Um, I've got... I read... Um, and I'd like to thank one of my students who shoved this in my hand and said, you should read this, uh, which I didn't until I started reading up on this podcast, which was Why Doesn't Microfinance Work by Milford Bateman. Okay. So he's a massive critic of microfinance right um and has written and or edited a book called the rise and fall of global microcredit as well so he like properly kind he's of, not a fan he's not but then again like i say it, he oh, he talks about new mfi so he doesn't mm. necessarily hammer grameen but he does talk about the kind of self-promotion of Eunice and obviously within it there are criticisms of some of the Grameen so there's one where the Grameen works with Danon okay and with Danon they roll out this scheme of kind of selling milk I think they use oh yeah, yeah, yeah I think it's mentioned in passing in yeah, Eunice's and, book and obviously yeah as a positive and, and, and then for Milton he sees it as a way of oh sorry Milford of getting easy supply chains in there and obviously entering the market yeah. and things that, and sees it as a very much more sort of cynical yeah cynical view where's he coming from then this chap is he from a sort of a, the right or the left would you say uh i i, I just think he, he just breaks it down in terms of saying there are better ways of spending the money it's as okay. simple as that now there's a guy who kind of is in between them who's called david rudman right. who's written a book called due diligence and there's a piece where he criticises Milford Bateman's book, but at the same time, he does also criticise mm. microfinance, but understands that there are good elements related to yeah. microfinance and you can't be ultra-critical about it. That yeah. is the argument. That's kind but, of where I'm at, I think. But I think there is a, definitely a war wage raging out there in terms of 
is is there a better way of spending money? Whether you think at the end of the day it does help the poor, mm. is it the best use of yeah. money? And I think that's a really interesting question. Well, interesting. We've talked about Esther Dufflo and her yeah. work um, and this whole sort of random control trials and yeah. things like that. She's definitely someone we might yeah, and, and cover you, in a future episode. And you can read articles about her. Mm. Uh, sorry, yeah, like her group, as it were, yeah. who have looked into this as well. Mm. And I think there's a lady called Rachel Meager who's done some work on this as well, mm. um, who you can also kind of find out some work on. Great. Right. Okay, if Eunice was a boxer, oh, what do you think his walk-on music would be and why? I think I'm going to struggle with this, but he does talk in his biography a little bit about music. Mm. He talks, for example, about a folk song that he liked when he was young called Come My Heart, Let Us Go Somewhere Else. I've got to say, it doesn't sound like boxing music, though. <laughs> but also, there is a musical connection. Uh, so his oldest daughter, Monica, who he's estranged from uh, for quite a long period, she's a, a soprano in, uh, sort of in New York. Oh, really? She's a major opera singer, yeah. She's she's also the co-founder of something called Sing for Hope. They do oh, right. lots of sort of musical outreach work. So just to give you a recent example, yeah. uh, they like play music when people are being vaccinated and things like that. Oh, lovely. Yeah, so, uh, and her her music, she sees the daughter of his, you know, the, yeah. the, the Russian, they were estranged. Yeah, yeah. And the, 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 yeah. So she's the daughter from that relationship. The New York Times describes her as especially winning... Charleston City Paper, utterly captivating. Wow. And the Palm Beach Daily News, a voice destined for superstardom. So she is eventually sort of reunited with Dad, and she sang an award ceremony for her dad, which must have been a nice moment. Oh, that must have been. How lovely. uh, Just before he wins a Nobel Prize, they took a trip to Bangladesh together for the first time since she was four years old. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? It's a nice story, isn't it? It's a nice story. And one song that she sings... Really nice uh, piece of opera, Oh Mio Babino Caro. Do you know that? you know it? No, no. What gets me here, Pete, is I think we found like the the, uh, the opposite ends of the spectrum here, aren't we? we mm. I mean, your love for classical music in many respects, isn't it, Pete? Yeah. But it's a musical connection to our economist. No, 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 I like that. I like I'm, not, I'm just saying this, of... this, is, this is kind of classic, I think, Pete. Yeah. The classical <laughs> snobbery of it all. Snobbery? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Snobbery. His his daughter is an yeah. opera singer. No, no, I think Come on. But, you know, what, anyway, what's that song? Oh, mio babino caro. <laughs> You'll know it. Well, how does it go? Oh, mio babino caro. <laughs> Who's that by? It's... Oh, it's... I think it's Puccini. It's from an okay. opera called Gianni Schicci. All right, okay. Yeah. No, no, well, very good. Well, that was a lovely rendition. Thank you. <laughs> it is for a soprano. <laughs> and I think at best I'm a tenor. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I would pay a fiver. <laughs> so, um, I, I, well, I'm going down the opposite end here. I, 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 have you finished, sorry, with that? Oh, I just want to say, isn't oh. it peculiar? The yeah. last two economists we've covered. Yes. Their children have ended musicians. up being yeah. sort of musicians. Isn't that interesting? Mm. It is interesting. What are the chances? Well, we'll find out for the third one. <laughs> the next one coming. Okay. Um, I delved into the the world of um, Bangla rap. Oh. <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> and uh, I came across a very catchy tune called Chap Nye Song. Oh, 
right. uh, by Tabib Mahmood. Right. And okay. it is a proper party banger. Right. <laughs> and, and it's something that you've... But that is not the one I'm recommending. Okay. Because it's a brilliant one that I found. Okay. There's a Grameen Foundation intern video. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's this lad called Fred Graves uh, who, who does a Grameen rap. Wow. Yeah. So I've got the link. Okay. And they sample, which is really nice, uh, this um, African kind of music that they've obviously helped out, Grameen Foundation have helped out with, yeah. and he samples it within this rap. <laughs> it is classic. Yeah. Is it a yeah. good piece of music? It's just funny. It's oh. just funny. you got, you got to watch it. Anyway, oh, right. I'll look forward to it. It's, it's, they sell it as the first Grameen rap video. They're quite corporate, aren't they, the way you describe it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. right, Poetry Corner. Right, what am I reading now? I've got you your, your notes. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> you ready? Yes. Who's the economist we have to thank for giving us the Grameen Bank? That's Mohammed Yunus, a teacher you know, who wanted to be poverty's number one foe. He aimed to do this with microcredit, small loans that would be of benefit to those who needed a helping hand to create some profit from their land. He started with money from his own pocket, but the soon the idea went off like a rocket. He didn't care about collateral. It was based on trust, that was all. He focused on women in groups of five, who'd support each other to thrive and thrive. And with a repayment rate of 99%, it was deemed a success by those who lent. This was the magic bullet, a win-win for all. Time to give development budgets an overhaul. But as new MFIs spread across the globe, more and more economists began to probe how effective the loans were for helping the poor. As the industry grew, there appeared to be flaws. Displacement occurred, no economies of scale. No one cared if the business had failed. It encouraged the growth of the informal sector, and some lived in fear of the debt collector. For new MFIs, the objective was profit. Forgotten was poverty, and how to stop it. Eunice's vision had gone astray, but not before a peace prize had come his way. Oof. <laughs> I was really happy with that one. Yeah, it's good. Thank, thank you. Had a certain rhythm to it as well. <laughs> Did you like your aloo chop, by the way? Oh, it's delicious. Yeah, good. And I hope you will share the recipe. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah it's, de- it's dead easy. Very satisfying. Yeah. I think anything like this, which is kind of like a barge, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. What's the, what's, why is it the coating on the top? It's like a batter. Yeah, batter, isn't yeah. it? Like barge is a batter, though, isn't I it? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I, always, I, I resist making. Oh, like, that? Do you I don't like, like a... using batter. I don't cook with batter. Oh. But anyway, um, so do we like him? Would we have a beer with him? Well, Would he drink beer? I don't think he drinks. Right. He, he mentions in his biography, obviously he is Muslim, but I don't know how strict he is. I think right. he married a non-Muslim, but he mentions a few times about his stay in America. He was never tempted to drink. Right. Uh, but... I think there's lots of fun things we could do. He's into his amateur dramatics. Right. Perhaps you could re- recreate your famous portrayal of Doc from West Side Story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Much like a hot water pipe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he was into stamp collecting. Right. Art. Uh, perhaps we... But he, I was a stamp collector when I was younger. Were you? Yeah, a bit. My brother did a bit more than Got I did. loads so. in the loft. Ah. So we could have a fun time going through that. I think he, liked, he might have liked painting, though. Maybe we could all paint each other. Oh, you know that, that might be nice. We could all like, yeah. Like, oh right, Mohammed, you can paint Gav. 
Yeah. Gav, you can paint me, you know. Yeah. And I'll paint uh, Mohammed. <laughs> so that could be quite fun. And then we could go uh, to listen to his daughter sing in the evening. That'd be lovely. Yeah. That would that be, be really nice. I, I think Do you be... think he'd like us? Uh, I think we'd have to like look, be quite lively. Do you know what I mean? I think we'd have to pretend that we were more energetic and entrepreneurial <laughs> than we were. Yeah, we're um, economics in ten is actually a social enterprise, Mohammed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we might have to sort of play up our sort mm. of social entrepreneurial um, sort of activities a little bit. Do you know how much he's worth? I have no idea. I thought this was fascinating. When you look it up, apparently he's worth ten million pounds or ten million dollars. Now, you know, without... Do you, do you think that's odd? Um, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It's like someone who obviously... He's made, you could argue, a lot of money out um, of the microfinance initiative. Yeah. I don't know. It just it, When I read that, I was thinking, that's a lot of money. Has he made it out of that? Is it lecture circuits? Well, whatever it is. I, I mean, he's yeah. obviously very well to do it in that yeah. respect. So I just felt that was fascinating. I thought I'd just yeah. throw it in there. Okay, so... We do like him, yeah? I think we'd definitely have a good time. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay. Who is it next time? What's happening? Well, it's either a special. We've talked about doing a special about yeah. the Chinese economy. Yeah, we're hoping so to do that. We're hoping to do that. Or we have one final last living economist to, yeah. to cover. So We think it might be Esther, don't we? It may well be Esther Duflo. Yeah. yeah. Exciting times. Yeah. Okay. Jolly good. Uh... We'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you'll listen to our next podcast. We'd also like to thank our friend Nick, as always, who gives us technical advice with regards to podcasting. And remember to follow us on all social networks out there, Twitter, Instagram at Economics in 10, or you can contact us by email at economicsin10 at gmail.com. We say this every single time, but we love hearing from you. We love to hear from you. And by all means, reviewers, we love a review. Good or bad, even the bad ones make us laugh, and the good ones touch us and lift us at those points in the week when we might not be feeling absolutely tippity top. Exactly. Yeah. So thanks for listening.